day before Thanksgiving in 1971, a man identifying himself as Dan Cooper bought a plane ticket from Portland to Seattle. He hijacked the plane, claiming he had a bomb in his briefcase and demanded $200,000 in four parachutes. He jumped out of the plane with the money and the bomb somewhere over the Pacific Northwest, never to be seen again. The FBI claims to have investigated over a thousand people, including dozens of deathbed confessions. In 2016, 45 years after the hijacking, the FBI suspended its investigation of the case. While the FBI is no longer looking for D.B. Cooper, there is a community of people who are trying to solve the case on their own. Welcome to the Cooper Vortex. Today on the show, we're lucky to have Vern Jones. Vern is an author, entrepreneur, and CEO of Principia Media. Vern and his team researched and published Carl Lauren's book, D.B. Cooper and Me, A Criminal, A Spy, My Best Friend. Carl's book is about his relationship with Walter Recca, who confessed to pulling off the D.B. Cooper heist and explained how he did it. Did you catch all that? Anyway, Vern is a cool guy, and the Walter Recca story is just incredible. Enjoy my conversation with my friend Vern Jones. All right, Vern, well, let's go ahead and get started. I guess the first question is, how did you get started with D.B. Cooper in the first place? Yeah, I, uh, I first heard about D.B. Cooper my first year of college, and so I was mildly interested in it, and I kind of followed some of the stories, but I'm not into conspiracy theories, and so uh, I really just am a casual follower. Uh, 2016, one of our editors that we work with uh, she came to our director of publishing and um, said, Dirk, my uncle has a story that he's really been dying to tell, and now he can finally tell it um, because Walter had died. Uh, and she said, I- I'd like you to, to talk to him about publishing. He wants to publish with a small publisher. And so Dirk called him, and they had a very good conversation. And then as the process is, Dirk then calls me and said, I think there's a story that we want to that we want to publish and I said really uh, what's it about and so he said well it's this guy who just is incredible life uh, and part of it was that um, that he was D.B. Cooper and so his friend is the one who's telling the story and I said oh you don't believe this nut job do you really it's like that's the last thing if you would have told me in 2016 the early January that I was going to publish anything about D.B. Cooper I would have doubted it seriously uh, so I called Carl and he's not a nut job he's he's really a very intelligent man he's had an incredible life on his own and so he said but he kept saying you, you've got to come to my house and see all of my evidence and so my wife and I happened to be coming back through um, uh, Daytona Beach where uh, Carl lives and I told Irene, I said, I'm going to go out and see his evidence. I'll probably be an hour and a half. And um, about six hours later, I called her and told her I was on my way home. And uh, the story, the thing that struck me at that point, I said, I know this, what happened after the hijacking, there's so much evidence. It's so intriguing. That's a story I want to publish. It's, it's amazing. Um, the Cooper thing, I don't know if I'll ever get there. But I know that we have a story in this. So that was how we pursued this to begin with. Yeah, his story after the hijacking is definitely incredibly fascinating. Yeah. Uh, he lived 
a pretty amazing life. He really did. Yeah, we like to call him the the, the blue collar James Bond. You know, he he instead you know Bond was with high society and uh, drank martinis and. Um, and and Walter drank beer and worked on oil rigs. All right, so, and then right. in between he went on assignments where he was asked to eliminate people. Um, so yeah, it's it was fascinating. And that part of his life, the passports are really solid. We have his diaries, we have bank account numbers. So it's a, that part of the story immediately came to me, and so I said we've got to tell this. Uh, but over time, after about a year and a half, I absolutely believe that he was that Walter Recca was Cooper. So after first meeting Carl, you spent a year and a half researching it on your own. Oh yes, well we not on our own. We had uh, we had a research team of from Principia where everybody was okay. Let's find this. Could you look into this part? So we did a lot of internet searching, a lot of record searching, a lot of Polk directories and all this stuff trying to find. But about two months into it, I recognized that wait a minute, we're not professionals at this, all right? And so, and because so much of our evidence was voice-based, uh, discussion-based, uh, and interviews, I knew that we needed someone with unique skills. And so uh, it just so happened we had published a book by one of the most nationally renowned forensic linguists, uh, Joe Koenig. And he literally teaches law enforcement, private investigators, and he's even done uh, presentations to the FBI about interrogating people but analyzing truth. Uh, the truthfulness of these, this uh, discussion or deceit. And so we, we hired him, and he also happens to be an outstanding investigator because we need professional assistance. And what the information they can get is amazing compared to what you or I could get. Um, and Joe happened to be the lead investigator of the Jimmy Hoffa case. Um, and so he has a great reputation, and so we brought him in, and that was basically our team. But uh, yeah, we started a two-and-a-half-year investigation uh, before we got to the point where we were comfortable publishing the book. How did you think the investigation was going to go when you started it? I thought that a lot of the story, you know, I, I knew enough. I began investigating the Cooper story, and there were some discrepancies between the two, and those bothered me. And so I thought, gosh, I don't know. Uh, again, I, I, I guess six months in, I would have told you we would have dropped the Cooper thing, um, except that once we kept looking, all of it just kept being confirmed, you know? And, I, and I'm like, all right. And the same thing happened with, with uh, Inspector Koenig, too. Uh, Joe told me, he said, I, I'm just waiting for that one shoe to drop that just destroys this whole case. And then it didn't come, and it didn't come. And, and, and Joe is interesting because I, after about two years, I said to Joe, Joe, what do you think? Tell me. Is, is Rekka Cooper? And he said, I can't tell you for sure. And I said, okay, answer this question for me. You have sent a lot of cases to prosecutors for prosecution. Would you send Rekka to prosecution with the evidence you had? And he said, oh yeah, absolutely. And I said, have you won cases like that? He said, routinely. So I'm like, okay, well that's cool enough. That's, that's good enough for me. And then finally, about two months before the book publishing, um, Joe called me and said, um, I'm just telling you, Rekka is Cooper. And that was a great moment for us, all right? And so, yeah, that was, that was for me, it was, I, I respect him so much. For him to say, he's Cooper, I thought, oh, thank God, you know. Why was he so confident? It was just the, the preponderance of evidence. And everything, every time we just kept 
saying this can't be true and then it turned out to be true you know um when we found the eyewitness uh jeff osadich um I that's actually, an incredible story it really was and i did the interview with jeff and um that you'll see it in the book and on the documentary but i actually did the interview and so i'm out there talking to him and my first question was okay wait a minute jeff you know you seem like a nice enough guy but i have to tell you how in the world could you possibly remember this incident? And his answer was really compelling. And he just said, I, first of all, Jeff was former law enforcement. And so Jeff said, I had been taught to observe the unusual. And he said that, um, that he remembered just some parts of the thing, but he remembered seeing, we didn't know he had seen Walter. Walter was walking down the road after he made it out to the uh, road and um, uh, Jeff drove past him and he says freezing rain it was just pelting this guy and he said I, I couldn't pick him up because he was driving a dump truck uh, and the day he he worked for a company that uh, that uh, let him use the dump truck and he used it on their behalf in the daytime and they actually took the passenger seat out so they couldn't pick up passengers <laughs> and he was on his way to play a gig because he's a country western uh, musician uh, by on, on the weekends and so he was on his way to play a gig at the Grange Hall, and we confirmed that the Grange Hall had an event and that Jeff set in for this uh, other guy um, that was supposed to be there. Uh, we interviewed the other guy, and he said, oh, yeah. That was he said, I remember it was just before Thanksgiving. That was the first time I had met, uh, I asked Jeff to set in for me, um, and he was the leader of this group. So we verified all of that, and I said, I still don't get it. How could you remember? And he, he just kept saying it was so unusual. And this guy... What cop came into this cafe and he was soaking wet and he had a suit on. What a ridiculous thing to wear. He said, I remember that he, he had these penny loafers on. And it, <laughs> penny loafers, it's like, I always wanted a pair of penny loafers. So I remember that. And he said that uh, the guy sat down, went over and used the phone and came back and said, um, my friend needs directions to come pick me up. Would you mind telling him how to get here, where we are? And Jeff said, you don't know where we are? And he said, no. He had no clue. Now, how weird. He said he had an automobile accident, but he had no clue where he was. And so um, he went over and gave the guy directions, and he told him to come down. He was coming from Seattle, and he said, you have to go down through Blewett Pass, and he explained. But it was that weird thing. And the other part was that then he introduced us to his family, his sons, uh, adult sons. Uh, one's the chief of uh, the fire department, and the other's a really accomplished musician. Um, and they both said, yeah, you know, our aunts still tell us that, uh, she said, as soon as, as um, Jeff came forward and said that these people had convinced or said, my gosh, you know, that guy I talked about, that was D.B. Cooper. And they remember Jeff coming back and telling this story about meeting this weird guy, and he would repeat that every couple of years. So all of this confirmed, you know, and again, it was just bizarre because... Uh, Jeff matched the description that Walt gave of someone he had never met and never talked to, even to his death. And, and 40 years prior. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, I was shocked because I'm like, I, that was my first year of college, like I said, and there aren't a lot of things I remember from that, I have to, I have to admit. But uh, yeah, it's exactly right, four years prior to that. And had Carl already found him before he had reached out to you guys? He had, yes. Yeah. And so... Uh, in 2012 was when Carl started, he decided he had to really 
pinpoint the landing zone, the drop zone, as they call it. Um, and so he did a lot of research. Um, Carl doesn't use computers, all right? And so he doesn't even use cell phones. He, uh, um, if we email back and forth, uh, his wife uh, emails it for him. Uh, when I ask Carl a question, he writes it out in longhand. He prints it out, and his wife takes a picture of the page and sends it to us. So he's not computer literate. So he went to the library and looked through. She microphone. takes a picture of the page and then sends it to you. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So that's how we. So I would get twenty individual pictures of this different pages when he would answer a question <laughs> for me. Uh, but he's very detailed. He loves to, to the detail too, and he's a pretty good writer actually. Um, so yeah, when he. He had his son help him. Who was a, his son was a commercial pilot. And now he owns a an aviation um, related business, and um, his son said, uh, when Walter was coming down through the clouds, he told him that um, he said once he got low enough that it was really heavy cloud cover, and so he didn't have a lot of time before uh, after he went through the clouds and before he, he landed. Um, but he did pick up some landmarks, uh, two rivers converging, a bridge going over top of it, and then most importantly, he saw some cars going past. Um, and that really helped him because after he landed, he knew which direction to walk, right? Um, and um, so he gave him those landmarks. And then the other thing that was important for that uh, drop zone was he talked about this cafe. And so he said, uh, it was weird, the cafe had gas pumps out front. So it was kind of a little truck stump, but it only had a couple of pumps he said it had a uh, a bar you walk in and sit at the counter uh, it didn't serve alcohol and it was open until midnight um, those were the three things that he and of course Walter would know if they served alcohol or not yeah he would you're exactly right wouldn't we all if we had just jumped out of that plane right <laughs> yeah with a broken leg <laughs> yes exactly exactly and uh, so he had those lamps so he Carl kept trying to tell him he said okay so he was following the flight path that he had found he kept saying okay so this is a little bit north of portland and walter would yell at him and say why do you keep saying portland i was nowhere close to portland ever and he said i know how i got home he said there's when after don picked me up we went right straight up uh, i think it's 97 uh, up through blewett pass and then through cashmere and eventually up to route two uh, which went right past heartland where he lived and he said that's how i went home that night so he said, I don't know where I was, but that's how I got home. Uh, and so then Carl started calling around. He called down to the, he looked up some cafes in the area. And the first one he called was the Liberty Cafe. And the owner of that said, Carl described the cafe as Walter did. And she said, oh, you're talking about the TNOA Junction Cafe. And it happened to be right on that intersection. And from that point, you could see you know, about a half mile down the road, he would be able to see a conversion to two rivers and a bridge. So that all kind of came together. And that's how we identified the landing zone. Yeah. When I first heard that account of him finding Cowboy, you know, what incredible luck i guess i would say that right. 40 years later he goes to this town and just asks a stranger hey i'm looking for a guy who may or may not have driven a dump truck and played country music and then to be able to find the guy it's uh Cleelum, washington is not a big metropolis <laughs> right and so carl was smart enough he you know where he where he went he went to the um the guy the gentleman owned a gas station and the tow truck towing company and he, they still do to this day and um, when he asked uh, Wayne, well, that is his name. When he asked Wayne, Wayne says, well, I, 
I wasn't really that active. I was really young in 1971. But he said, let me ask my dad and some of the other people. And so then he asked other musicians. But yeah, the description that, that Walt gave of Cowboy was, was pretty good. Again, pretty unique. I mean, it, yeah, wearing a cowboy hat, cowboy shirt, cowboy boots. That's kind of, uh, um, uh, kind of a nice description. But he had a guitar. He brought the guitar into the restaurant. And um, he had it leaning at the bar next to him. And then when he got up to leave, he got in a dump truck and drove away. So a dump truck driver by day and a country musician at night might really separate you a little bit. Uh, and so it was that or description that he gave to Wayne. And Wayne, after talking to some of the older people in town, called him a few days later because Carl went back home after, he'd, um, after he had asked him. Uh, he called him and said, I think I got your guy. And so that did start their conversations that, in uh, 2012, right? Yeah, I just, that, I just find that so incredible. 40 years yeah. after the fact to, to find the same person that you ran into in a restaurant. Yes, I, I agree. I agree. But when you think about and literally, Jeff, um, when we said, okay, he's a nice guy, obviously. He was a former law enforcement. We went to the, the newspaper um, in the area. And uh, a guy named Jim Fawcett um, is a, owns the newspaper there. And we started asking him about Jeff. He said, we had an incident, and uh, Jeff was our witness. And he said, really? If Jeff Osadich is your witness, you couldn't have found a better witness. Everybody trusts Jeff. Uh, as a matter of fact, Jeff was just voted Mr. Cole for 2017 for that entire area. And it's, uh, it was because of things he had done while he had worked in the coal mines. He had done a lot of uh, off jobs and side jobs. But uh, they, he literally was just a word. He's, when you go there, everyone knows Jeff. I mean, it's, uh, it's like Norm on Cheers, that old show. <laughs> you know, oh, Jeff. You know, so it's, uh, yeah, it, it was, it, we couldn't have been luckier to get that. And so it was incredibly good fortune. Like I said, I was skeptical at first, but when I got done, and when you listen to Jeff, he realized he's, the, the guy is, he's honest. And he's, um, he was the best witness. We were very, very fortunate. You're right. Oh, yeah. Watching the documentary, he didn't come off as someone who was trying to exaggerate or just wanted to be a part of the story. Or, or I didn't feel like he was being led into it or anything like that. Yeah, trust me. I was the one doing the interview, and I just said, as a matter of fact, I went to Joe Caney because he teaches interrogation, right? And Joe says you can't con contaminate, you know? Well, there was already some contamination between Carl and, and Jeff, and I recognize that. We will admit that. And, and Joe recognized it. But uh, so I said, okay, tell me exactly how to phrase the question and what question to ask. And he did. And, uh, and it, it basically, he said, what you need to ask him is, okay, now you know what situation I'm talking about and why I'm here. Could you tell me, in your words, what happened? And that was it. I was <laughs> like, and, and Jeff just literally took it from there. He was, he said, I've been telling this story for years, so it's an easy story to tell. Um, but yeah, it was, it was pretty impressive. And so let's just get started with the actual hijacking itself. Mm -hmm. So Walt is living it just outside Spokane at the time. Yeah. 75 right? miles west yeah. of Spokane. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Very small town called Heartline. 
He said, there's nothing there. He said, it was so, and he was raised in downtown Detroit, right? He was a, uh, yeah, he was raised on the streets of Detroit, and he's like, he hated it there. Oh, gosh. And he said, I'd, I'd rather be dead than here. Um, but he said, I had to drive 15 minutes just to get a newspaper, which is true. We went out there, and if you see the, the, the video um, of Heartline, uh, I'm sure it was a nice little town at one point, but wow, is it a it's really deserted and it is in the middle of nowhere yeah so that's where he was living and he was down on his luck hurting for money right um had some problems with the law from robbing a bob's big boy that's correct yeah <laughs> yeah yeah the really bad robbery yeah he is um he actually he <laughs> um uh, we didn't put it in the documentary but he we did find that he actually tried to rob uh, a jewelry show uh, he and his friend were, it was a bad time for him. He'd, he'd left his wife and he had tried, he had applied to the CIA and he was rejected. And so he was, he started drinking heavily and making some really bad choices. But um, he thought there was a jewelry show at this, um, this hotel uh, in Birmingham, Michigan. And he went in with a machine gun and shot up the ceiling and told the guys to put all their jewels out there. But he had the wrong week. Um, the police interviewed him for that um, and he was let go. Uh, we have the interview and everything, literally, and Walt said, yeah, I did that. That was stupid. And um, so then the next week he robbed a big boy, again, drunk, and, and um, he was arrested before he even got to the getaway car. Yeah. And one thing about Walt's story that I really like is it is so much different than all of the other Cooper suspects or hijacking stories. They all say, you know, this guy was a genius and it was super well thought out and it was planned methodically and he had all this inside information. And the Walter Recca story is, oh, I wanted to commit a crime with a parachute and so I figured this was the only way to do it. So I just drove there and got on the plane. Right, yeah, he, d he kept saying he didn't plan anything, but he did plan. I mean, he, he literally went, um, he drove the 75 miles into Spokane uh, to go to a thrift store because he didn't own a suit. So he bought it, and he wanted to look like a businessman. And so he bought a suit and a tie and the shirt, uh, his shoes and his overcoat and the briefcase at a thrift store. Um, and then he also bought the ingredients to make it look like a bomb. So he planned that out. Mm -hmm. And then when he decided to go uh, to the hijacking, he didn't drive to Portland. Again, he went back east, way out of his way, uh, 75 miles to get on the bus there because he said, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't be noticed. My car wouldn't be noticed if I left it there for a few days and I'd never be tied to the hijacking. So that was, so he did plan it out, but not a lot. And it's, yeah, he always said, you know, I don't want to do anything that would take more than a napkin to plan it out. <laughs> <laughs> but he, I think he had really good instincts just from his days as an enforcer with the Teamsters and his days as a, on the streets of Detroit. And he definitely had some luck once he was on the plane. Yeah, yes, he did. It was, uh, you know, 71, everybody has to remember it's a different world then. You know? Oh, for sure. Oh, my gosh. You know, there's, you could carry anything onto a plane, literally. I, I, I don't Even think a they, bomb. Yes, yeah, <laughs> a bomb. You could, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure you carried a gun on there. It's it just, it wasn't an issue. There was literally no TSA and no security. Um, so he was lucky with that. You know, it was, it was um, uh, a, a flight in really bad weather and, there weren't a lot of people on the flights, but I, I flew in in seventies, and I remember a lot of really empty flights. So, yeah, he did have some luck, and they typically didn't assign seats back then, and so there was just yeah, he he was lucky, but 
he was smart. Yeah, because he didn't know about the rear stairs, but says the flight attendant said, oh, well, the, the rear stairs will open. Yeah, you know, that's that's one where um, when I when I read that, uh, my research showed me that by all accounts, they got onto the plane from the black back stairs. And so I'm looking at that, oh, damn, you know, I, I wish he hadn't said that, you know, um, but he did. And so we weren't going to deny it. We weren't going to hide. It. I don't know about all the other people that have suspects, but we said, this is our evidence. It's all out there. If there's something you don't like about it, like our landing zone, which we knew was really controversial, but this was another one. You know, so how could he get on the plane and then not know that? Well, um, Walter was not a pilot, uh, but he'd been on a flight. He had had hundreds and hundreds of jumps by this time. He was uh, uh, United States uh, Parachuting Association C-99, is one of the first 100 people to be certified um, by them. And he, uh, so he had been jumping all the way back to 57, well, before, then 54 when he was a paratrooper. Uh, but then they jumped in the Michigan parachute team every weekend all through the winters in Michigan. Um, so they were in heavy storms and, and horrible weather and, and freezing temperatures. Um, so, yeah, he, um, when I talked to Carl about that, um, he said, you know, Walter had jumped hundreds of times and every time he had jumped out the side door, every time. And so why would he not? That would probably be his first instincts. And Carl, and Carl was a commercial pilot, and he said, I was shocked that the back door, the stairs, opened in flight anyway. And he said, I don't know if that came into effect, but he, Carl never questioned him about that, but um, Walter clearly said that he was prepared to go out the side, uh, and the stewardess said, oh, you know, there's back stairs there. And he thought, well, that's real good. That's not the language you use, but yeah, it was that concept. <laughs> And when I watched the documentary, one thing I came away with was it, it's so much different than all of the other stories that I've heard. It made me like it more because, okay, maybe it's unsolved because everyone else is looking the same direction, but it didn't happen this way. It happened this way. Right. Um, and especially the drop zone. Um, like you mentioned, it's controversial that his drop zone is in outside Clay Ellum when everyone else says it was, you know, Amboy, Yakult, Ariel right. area. Um, and then some people argue that it doesn't fit the flight plan or the flight path. I, um, I, you know, all the people that, w that are arguing that, all of them have something that they doubt about the FBI's information, <laughs> all right? I mean, uh, one of the guys that I talked with, he's, uh, he said, well, you know, I believe that, that Walter did come out of the woods with a suit on that night uh, with a briefcase, but he wasn't the only one that did. And I thought, okay, um, I, you know, I'll need to talk about that with you later. But Yeah, I can't imagine so, that happening a lot. Yeah, yeah, so they, they could accept all that, but... You know that we, when we're working with uh, Jeff Koenig, and Jeff has really close relationships with the, the FBI. As a matter of fact, um, Joe has, uh, has written a book about his investigation. It will be out in January. And we sent this out to different law enforcement people for endorsement. And um, so, so uh, I'm sorry, yeah. Joe, that you hired has also written a book about his investigation of, in, of, of Walter? Walter Recca. Yes. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah. I look forward to that yeah. book. Yeah, and um, it's funny because one of the first people that responded, he sent all that he knows, prosecutors, judges, law enforcement people. Well, the first one to write back to us, and it was quick. She read through this in like a week and a half. Um, was uh, a lady by the name of Kathleen McChesney, PhD. Uh, she happened to be second in command at the FBI behind Robert Mueller, the highest ranking female FBI agent. Um, so it was really impressive. And she said, Joe Koenig has solved this case. Um, oh, no way. Yeah, so I'll, I'll show you the, the other endorsements, but it's uh, prosecutors, judges. Um, one of the prosecutors, a very famous prosecutor out of Oakland County, Detroit, said, if Joe had brought this case to me, I would prosecute RECA now. Um, so we have some great endorsements from it, but there are a lot of people that really, that's why, you know, we're saying, you know, we, we solved this. If we, if we get that kind of an endorsement, and he analyzes all the transcripts, by the way, it's, it's really impressive. So um, we think it is a different story. We came at about it as a different angle, too. Um, most of the other people, I, first of all, I, I don't um, uh, disparage any of the other people. As a matter of fact, I admire the research that they've done. And, you know, you talk to most of them, and, and they have gone through every word in the, in the FBI, uh, all the uh, interviews. They've gone through all the emails that have gone back and forth between FBI and all of this information. And then they've come up with a, a profile that they think best fits the Cooper at that point. And then they look at the suspects, and then they say, okay, this is the one I believe it was. And then they do some incredible investigation. Uh, and as a background. So I absolutely admire a lot of the stuff that they've done. It's really, really impressive. We came at it from a different angle. We came up with a 12, you know, sorry, a 14 year confession. It wasn't a deathbed confession. He and Carl talked about this for 14 years, multiple times a week, sometimes multiple times a day. And they would talk about various aspects of it. Well, finally, it and that started in 1999. In 2008, Carl said, I better tape some of this. And so we actually have three and a half hours of audio tape where Carl's saying, okay, you told me this earlier, you know, Derek. And he just is trying to make sure he's getting as much as possible on these tapes. Um, so it's, it's a different, we're coming at it from a different angle um, than everyone else. And so, yeah, it, it is completely unique. And the fact that, again, we didn't have really good um, radar at that time. It was line of sight radar. And there's some several mountains around this area, as you might have noticed. Yes, All right. And so the fact that they wouldn't actually have him on radar in a really horrible weather situation, we talked to air traffic controllers, but we talked to commercial pilots, and the commercial pilot said, this is the route I would take. Definitely go east. The, the normal pattern to go down that was to go east over the Cleolum area and then go south. Um, and so they were shocked that that wasn't it. And especially when you think that, you know, they he had a bomb on board, right? And so the first reaction for having a bomb, when we talked to the pilots, their first reaction was, well, I'd go over the water. I'd go over the ocean right now and then go down because that way, you know, not a lot of people are going to die. Um, but the fact that, that makes sense. I guess I'd never thought about that before. Yeah, how the so, pilots would fly if there was a bomb on board. So that was the first react. That was the first thing. And then the second factor, of course, was the four parachutes. Well, the FBI assumed, as most people would, that he was going to take a hostage. I mean, there's two front, two backpacks, and 
all likelihood he was going to take so they said we can't go over the ocean because we'll kill the hostage right and that's so, a great point they said we don't care point. if you cooper dies but you know we, so that was what and then they said okay so where would you go i said well i get over the cascades as soon as possible and that's flat plains out there um and you're not over a big city you're over Ellum instead of olympia you know and, and so that was that all made sense to us you know, and uh, if you remember, uh, Malaysia was airline three, flight 370 just disappeared a couple of years ago over the ocean, and it totally disappeared. We have no idea where it went. So to think that they actually had a valid path, um, I know once he got to Portland, they did, and that's where our flights paths converged. So, um, again, uh, we've always said everyone else has a hypothetical route. We have a landing spot. We have an eyewitness and we have a someone telling us the story and so that's um it was inconvenient but it was a, it was the story walt told and we have evidence he landed there that day we know how we got home and we know that his friend picked him up and drove, drove him on a particular route so we thought that was more important than trying to match the fbi's evidence joe caning always said you know i would i would divert it I, the last thing I want, if I going back to the Hoffa case, if, if I knew where Hoffa's, where I thought Hoffa's body was, I wouldn't tell anybody uh, because I don't want a bunch of people out there with shovels and looking around for this guy. Um, and he said, in that case, I wouldn't want a bunch of people trampling through the woods with their shotguns and hoping to, you know, to wreck it rich. So um, preserving the scene was one thing, but um, you know, Walter in January uh, of 1971. Like I said, well, in 63, he was refused entry into the CIA, but he met a guy that uh, has been a lifelong friend through all of his world travels, and um, that Philip got him a job at Vanell Corporation in Seattle, which has very, very strong ties to uh, the intelligence community, and uh, they they make um, uh, oil rigs and, and construction sites, but primarily Saudi Arabia and Indonesia, um, and uh walter started working with them on a part-time basis in 71 um and then shortly after that full-time basis <laughs> the, the confession yeah. tapes with carl why do you think it was that he didn't want this story to come out until after he had passed away do you think it was fear of prosecution or fear of he he feared going to jail he kept telling i'm not going to prison i will not go to prison and so um, as a matter of fact, what stopped the audio tapes from continuing was Carl asked Walter if he could get a DNA sample. Um, and Walter said, don't, absolutely not. He said, I'm not going to prison. And I'd go to prison. No, absolutely not. Don't DNA. So Carl went up to visit him when he was sick. Carl lived in Florida and Walt lived in uh, upper Michigan. And um, so he went up to visit him. Walt was sick. Uh, he was blowing his nose and coughing into Kleenex. When Walt went into the bathroom, Carl used tweezers and picked those up and put them in a sandwich bag and brought them back to um, Daytona Beach. He went to a very famous lawyer there, um, David Damore. Uh, he's on the, the uh, documentary. And uh, he said, David, I want you to submit this. I want to be anonymous on this. I want, and I will not tell you the name of my friend. We'll call him Mr. Blank. And he said, I want you to submit this for testing, and then I want you to send it to David Carr in Seattle, the, the um, FBI agent. 
the agent in charge at that point. And so he did. He matched, He called David Carr and said, I'm going to send you this, this DNA profile, and I want you to match it because my friend, my client believes that his friend is D.B. Cooper. And so Carr said, according to Demore, Carr said, uh, it's not going to match. And <laughs> he said, I'm going to send Why it. Why would he say that? I don't know. There's more interesting things that, they, that Agent Carr said. So he said, I'm going to send it anyway. He said, fine. And Demore, the attorney, said, how long will it take? And, and uh, Agent Carr said, two to three days. I should have it back. So he sent it in. No results in two to three days. About a week later, Carl was the one who got a phone call, and it was from Walter, and said, why did you effing DNA me? And Carl said, I, I really had to. And he said, we're done. And he hung up the phone, and they didn't talk for months um, because he was so angry. Um, so anyway, Carl calls Demore, and Demore calls Carr, and Carr says, we don't have it back yet. And so Demore showed us emails that he sent to Carr along the way and phone calls and nothing till 74 days later, Demore gets an email from Agent Carr saying, oh yeah, sorry it took so long, that didn't match. And then as wow. they, so then Demore calls Carr and they talk a little bit and, and Demore told him, he said, yes, it, you know, he got, he, he got home because he called a friend and he drove him home. Uh, that's the story that uh, my client tells me. And according to uh, Demore, uh, Carr said, uh, do you have the name of the guy who drove the car? I thought that was a strange question to ask. Not who is Mr. Blank, <laughs> right? It's who drove the getaway car. What was the interest in the getaway car? And did he even know that? I don't know. Demore said, I didn't know what to say. I just, I, I don't know. Um, as a matter of fact, Demore really didn't know Walter's name until we did the interviews with him. And while we're talking, we mentioned Walt. And he said, that's the first time I've heard his name. I didn't know until now. So, wow. yeah. <laughs> it's really interesting that Carr would say it's not going to match when a lot of times the public has said the DNA profile is only partial and we might be able to use it to exclude someone, but we couldn't do a positive match. Right, right. Yeah, so, I thought that was a peculiar statement too. But yeah. yeah, it seems everyone has a different story on if there's DNA, what the DNA is. Yeah. Boy, that's, that's pretty wild. Yeah, we thought so. <laughs> <laughs> and then, so, um, Walt commits the hijacking and then what was it, six months later, where he's approached at work? No, it was only a couple of months later. Walt broke his leg, as you mentioned, in the, in the, the drop, but Walt had broken so many legs. As, as a matter of fact, Walter introduced Carl to his wife, Loretta. And the first time, so Loretta was Walter's first, actually second wife, but <laughs> uh, his, his wife of record. Um, uh, her name was Joni. Joni introduced... Um, uh, or Joni was best friends with Loretta, Carl's wife. And so um, Walter was out jumping with the Michigan parachute team, and so Joni invited um, uh, Loretta to come along, and ultimately she met uh, Carl. But the first time she met Walter, Joni got a call because Walter had broken his leg in the first jump of the day because it was freezing rain, the ground was really hard, and he broke his leg when he landed. Um, According to Loretta, Walter told them that, yes, they'd, he broke it on his first jump. Well, the rest of the guys said, we'll take you to the hospital, but 
we have to do our next jump, all right? And so then he said, all right, well, I said, well, I'm not just gonna sit here and wait for you. And so he went up and jumped again and broke the other leg. So Loretta told us the first time, Carl confirmed it, the first time that, uh, that she met him that Walter literally broke two legs that day. Um, but there's, we have several pictures with a broken arm of Walter. He, broken bones were not foreign to them or any of those guys, really. Yeah, I can't imagine sport parachuting in the late 50s, early 60s was a safe thing to do. Oh, yeah, this, they landed so hard. And when the ground's frozen and the winds are blowing, and yeah, they said that Walt's first jump with the team, it actually, he was blown into a barn. He, he hit the side of a barn and they... Uh, they were joking that it looked like Roadrunner, you know, that when oh, hits yeah. the, the coyote hits the wall <laughs> and slides down. They said it looked just like that. So that's, yeah, it was crazy. I, don't, I can't believe that any of them are still alive, literally. Oh, yeah. But, and, um, so, but what was approached at work by? Right. Yeah, it was a couple. He went back to work. The, the, he went back to work on Monday after the hijacking uh, with a broken leg. He, worked at, he was working at the Cooley uh, Dam at that point. And um, he got it set at the infirmary there, so he didn't have to go to a, a doctor. That was really convenient. Um, and then he was on light duty for a while when he was sent there. Um, and then, yeah, he was finally back to welding, which is what he did. And two guys came up to him with, in hard hats and said, well, uh, do you want to go have a beer after work? Well, if you read any of the story, you'll recognize that Walt doesn't turn down beer. And so he said yes. So he met him at the Brown Derby in Spokane and they sat down they ordered the beer the waitress brought the beer over and she walked away and the guys one of the guys turned to Walter and said Walter Pika which was interesting because for the last three years he had been going under Walter Recca right and so everything there on the Grand Coulee Dam record he was Walter Recca because he was, I'm sorry, he was born Walter Pika was, Jr. He was born, yes, yeah, Walter Pika Jr., that's correct. Pika, right, yeah. Sir. And then he changed in 67. He just drew the line down from the P to make it an R. <laughs> we, can, <laughs> we actually did under um, a blue light. You can see that it's a different pen and stuff like that. But uh, so they said, um, Walter Pika, do you want to spend the rest of your life in prison? Walter said, no. And the other guy said, then you work for us. And they both stood up and walked out of the bar. And then two weeks later, he thought it was a joke. Um, he couldn't figure if it was a prank that they were playing on him. And, and, uh, and, and the tape, Walter said that he, uh, he went to the union steward at the site and he said, there, there were two union workers that were here yesterday. I'd never seen them before. They were new. Who were they? And the guy said, there are no new union workers. And so Walter said, well, then maybe they were playing a joke on me. And he told them about them getting their beers, ordering it, and then walking out. And the guy said at the union shop said, they weren't union workers. And he said, how do you know? And he said, I don't know one, let alone two union workers who would leave a beer on the table. Um, so that was uh, just an interesting side story. But he, um, two weeks after that, he got a phone call that said, You're, um, there's a plane ticket for you at the Spokane airport to go to Boise, Idaho, be on that flight. And that began a training session for the next year and a half. Um, where he's just interrogated in, in Boise. Yeah, well, actually, they said he said it was, um, they were very friendly, they were very nice, and they, he just started doing these, re they asked a series of really strange questions. And then the, the training accelerated into, he, they would walk him through a room and they would say, okay, tell me, 
um, if you were going to hide in there, what, where would you have been after he had gotten through it? And this, uh, what were the windows? Where, where could you jump out if you had to? And just things like that. Um, and then some of them were just even really obtuse, um, uh, comparing one answer to another. And it was that, that was how he described his training for the most part. But he, um, he didn't really like to talk about the clandestine work. He talked about one in detail. Um, but uh, yeah, it was his passports, he has a resume that was made up for him by the Consulate General of the United States in, in Dahran. Um, I don't know anybody else who gets their <laughs> resume done by someone like that, but um, it shows him traveling all over the world, and he's he's a supervisor on these oil rigs out in the the ocean. Other, he was never a supervisor in his life. All right, he was very he's a very intelligent man. He just was not well educated, but he spoke Russian and Polish. He was raised that way. He spoke those languages in his home, um, and he learned English in school. So. He had some assets, and he wasn't afraid to use guns. Those were his weapons of choice. Did he know what was going on or who he was working for? Or No, it was when Carl would talk to him, and Carl would say, when you, you know when you worked for the CIA, and Walter would interrupt him and say, Charlie, that's what he called him, Charlie Brown. He said, Charlie, I, I never worked for the CIA. You've got to stop saying that. I worked for all of them. And... These conversations, keep in mind, took place in 2008, 2009 on the audio tapes. There's a new movie out with Tom Cruise. It's last last year. It's called American Made. And it shows Bobby Seale being recruited. And it was not into the CIA, but he kept thinking it was a CIA. And the guys kept saying, you're not CIA, you know. But he was doing jobs, assignments for them, running drugs, running weapons. Um, but they recruited him in a bar very similar to the way, except there was one person instead of two that Walter was recruited. Um, and then it was, at the end, when uh, Bobby Seale gets arrested, he said the same thing. I don't work for the CIA. I, I don't work for them. I work for all of the agencies. And so it was, he clearly did assignments that were more related to Mossad. Um, he spent time behind the Iron Curtain uh, doing some assignments. He had a, a KGB identification, his picture on it, clearly says KGB, CCCP, and it, he said, and it's leather-bound, and he told Carl, I could get into any country with this. Um, but that's, uh, his niece, Lisa, has that. Uh, but it's, it's impressive. He, um, he clearly had some connections. <laughs> yeah, which would be a pretty odd thing to have for kind of a small-time crook to, right, to yeah. have. Yeah, yeah, he was, you know, uh, like I said, he he wasn't. Uh, Carl keeps saying he was he was very clever, uh, and that's what he had a lot of robberies. He did he wasn't caught at, um, so he's he was a very clever man, but he not well educated. You wouldn't look at him and say, yeah, this is a guy that I would want as a master spy. Well, it was someone the CIA said we we don't want as a CIA agent, but we can use this guy, and I think that was basically what was happening. Right, and similar to, um, is it Bobby Seal or Barry Seal? Uh, you know it is, Barry Seal. Barry yeah. Seal. Yeah. yeah, similar to his story, um, you know, if he gets hurt, if he dies, he isn't doesn't work for the CIA. Right. He's on his own. Yeah. Deniability, yeah. Right, yeah. yeah, so that definitely makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So that was why, while Joe said that he thought the route difference was because they didn't want to contaminate it, I 
Joe taught me another term, <laughs> and that's, that's the greater good. And he said, you know, when, uh, when we were state police, we went into a small town, we would say, leave that guy alone, we're watching him, right? And the FBI would come to us and say, okay, I know you've got a case built on, you know, Vern, but we have bigger fish to fry here. The greater good tells us that we would like you to leave him alone. And so I, there's, a, in my mind, that's kind of what's happened. You know, the, the hijacking was high profile, but I keep in mind between 68 and 72, there were 131 hijackings in the United States. Um, right. And so hijackings were really all over the globe at that time. And it was really a tumultuous time where the, uh, the, the race riots were going on, the anti-war protests were going on, the Pentagon Papers had just been leaked, the FBI uh, records in Pennsylvania had been stolen and released, and all of this stuff was happening in the intelligence community. And it, it just, I, I think, I'm looking at the hijacking, uh, Walter didn't hurt anybody. Um, there may have been some people traumatized, I understand, and, and I don't mean to diminish that, but no one died. And he just took some money uh, so <laughs> and made a good story. Money that they had prepared for such an occasion. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I personally think so. It's not um, some in the team think, yeah, I, I'm not sure. And Joe is more like, Joe is clearly more in the line of, of um, yeah, they just needed to leave the, the scene alone. But he said, I can't deny the greater good could have played into this too. So um, I, uh, I think that's, you know, it, it was weird. All the other you know, suspects, these guys, I, truly great research. All of those guys, uh, almost all of them were paratroopers. You know, they were all you know, um, uh, extremely uh, skilled at their, but, um, the FBI's primary um, profile was a parachutist. And they said they interviewed all the parachutes. Well, Walter had parachuted. He was more than anybody, not me, right up there with anyone. He knew all of them. He knew Cosi, the guy who packed the chutes. He frequented the drop zones. He was known as a parachutist. Right. And he wasn't interviewed. His friend Don, who came at the that came and uh, picked him up afterwards was also a paratrooper. That's how they knew each other. And they interviewed Don and it scared him a lot uh, to the point he wouldn't even talk about the hijacking with Walt. Walt says, if I, you have him on tape. He says, if I bring up the, the subject, he hangs up immediately. He was really afraid of being caught um, because they, he knew he had some of the money. So um, it was just strange to me. He has, he was, you know, he's 5'10", and he had the right build, he had the right experience, and he's not even interviewed. Uh, that was weird to me. So that's why I think the greater good makes most sense from my perspective. Yeah, and how many people were in the sport parachuting community in 1971? Yeah, it was very limited, that's for sure, yeah. Yeah, especially the really, uh, yeah, Walt jumped up in Alaska uh, for a few months, and he taught well, he didn't teach people to parachute. He got them drunk and told them to jump out. So I guess that is teaching them parachuting but <laughs> <laughs> to some people. But, yeah, he jumped, like I said, in, in Elsinore. He jumped all over. He knew Bob Sinclair. A lot of really famous parachutists um, were good friends of his. Uh, it's shocking that out of all the people, he wouldn't. He, and he looks very similar to the, the very first um, uh, artist sketch. Uh, but then not so much the later ones. But, uh, yeah, it was 
it was peculiar to me that he wasn't. So while everyone else, you know, they say, well, the FBI looked at him for a while, but then they gave it up, you know, they never even looked. I think that's just very peculiar. How do you think the, the CIA found him? I think, well, when he went to Elsinore, he met this guy named Philip Q. Um, we do know his last name. Um, we just decided not, we don't know his family. We don't want to impugn anyone. Uh, and he was clearly intelligence community, but he was basically Walter's handler. Um, we have them connecting in Amsterdam and Warsaw and uh, Thailand and Indonesia, Jakarta. Um, they made routine. And in Walter, we have Walter's diaries also. In his diaries, they have all these locations and phone numbers and bank accounts uh, along with Phil Q. So while we have those, we can't really show those and we don't want to. And, but um, we, there are a few people that we know um, were his handlers or there was one from the Detroit Free Press um, who clearly was, um, uh, well, Walter Tolkar and said, yeah, he was giving me orders to go to Warsaw at that point. Um, from the Detroit Free Press? Yeah. Yeah, a letter. It was a letter on the Detroit Free Press letterhead. We have the guy's name and title, which we don't release because the gentleman's still alive. Um, and so, I mean, the, like I said, the connections that we see, and when you see uh, uh, even the passports, uh, I have the passports with us, so I'll show people the passports tomorrow. But uh, it's it, it's clearly Walter, and it's it's uh, he has an English passport um, and uh, it five American passports that he had used. Is it possible the CIA didn't communicate with the FBI about this and the FBI continued an investigation or do you think that was kind of just for show? I, you know, I think anything's possible. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I really don't. Uh, I happen to believe that the interference personally, I mm -hmm. think it happened while they were on the plane in SeaTac. Um, I think they knew it him because I know that they were watching him and Phil Q kept really close contact with him. Um, and so I think they were aware when he was on the, on the tarmac at SeaTac that it was him. That's my opinion. Um, other people think it happened a little bit later, but, um, and because of that, I think there was, I think some in the FBI knew it didn't take too many in the FBI, but, um, um, I'm not sure all the other agents that took it up later, you know, it was, it was kind of a strange thing too, is that that was on the night before Thanksgiving. And so the FBI, like every other place, those of highest seniority, the highest skills aren't working Thanksgiving Eve, right? Right. <laughs> all right. So that's, um, but yeah, any of that is it's conjecture, but it's, uh, those are my opinions. Gosh, this, this story is, Pretty great, yeah. pretty great. Well, he, you know, he couldn't be arrested. Um, we had, uh, even in his later life. Oh, yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Uh, the, um, the, the seizure of all the guns when the ATF yeah. raided him. Yeah. yeah. And you guys have all that documentation. Yeah, I have this search warrant. And I have all, it was the, it was the Michigan State Police and the, the ATF. Um, and they, they uh, Walter said he was forewarned that he knew that they were coming. Now keep in mind, he's a convicted felon. He's not able, allowed to possess guns. And um, he, uh, uh, so he hid the bigger guns 
uh, <laughs> and the larger ones at friend's house. And he puts, he puts some in the garage behind, um, uh, they, oh shoot, uh, put drywall up, uh, in the garage and he put some of the machine guns back in there. So when they raided his house, he only had 38 weapons. Um, only he, 38. Yeah. He had grenade launchers, automatic weapons, a lot of semi-automatic automatic weapons. He had them literally behind, like they said, okay, it was behind the door in the kitchen, there was this gun. And then in the bathroom, uh, there was this, you know, it was bizarre that he strategically had these weapons all over his house. But he knew they were coming, let them in. They seized 38 weapons. Um, they confiscated all of them. Uh, four of them belonged to his best friend Willard's son. Uh, his name's Mickey, and we interviewed Mickey, and um, Mickey got his guns back, but Walter didn't get his back. Um, but it didn't matter because they weren't really the important guns, the ones that he was selling at that time. He burned down a pizza parlor. Uh, by the way, uh, when we did the Freedom of, Inf of Information Act, uh, they said um, nothing happened at that house on that date, <laughs> even though we have the handwritten list. And, 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 uh, we, and again, uh, Joe Koenig, being the investigator, he said, state police said, oh, yeah, that's exactly what we're required to do. And they hand wrote every weapon and where it was found and stuff. He said, that's exactly what that is. But Freedom of, of Information said, oh, there's nothing there. Um, yeah, he burnt down a pizza parlor. Uh, he had a witness that saw him, an employee that saw him practicing to burn it down. <laughs> and, and then his son was charged with perjury. Right. Yeah. On, his, on that. Yeah. His son. His son turned him in. They're, they weren't close. Walter's son. Yes, Walter's son. They weren't close. All right. And so they, Walter Jr., his son name was also Walter Jr. Um, and so, his, so Walter's son um, testified against him. And then two days later, Walter and, and his son said at that time, I, you've got to protect me because... Um, I, I may not live. My dad won't let me live if I, if I do this. Really? Yeah. And then two days later he came back and Walter and his wife and, uh, the, the son's mother, um, they drove him to the prosecutor's office and he recanted, um, and decided that, no, I was just making that up. I was mad at my father. Um, so anyway, they sent it all there. Uh, the, the funny part of the story is the fire inspector uh, who did the inspection on this was Joe Koenig's very good friend. Um, and he recognized his name, and he just documented that this was clearly arson. And um, they uh, decided not to prosecute. Um, and neither him nor his son were ever charged with anything. No, no. Hmm. I know. Have, have you talked to Walt's kids? Um, no, we've tried. Um, one of his sons reached out to us and I wish he would reach out again. We would really like to talk to him. Um, he left one phone message for us and he gave us a phone number and we tried to call him back as did Lisa, Walter's niece, their uh, cousins, and, um, would really like to talk to him. But, um, he decided, um, he, he told us, he said, I have some information that you would really appreciate. And then he won't return calls. So um, I feel bad that we don't. He's um, And you never found out that information? No, we didn't. We're, That's we're unfortunate. Not, it's not over. We're trying, okay? We'd still like to, but after a while I said, all right, I won't bother you anymore. Try contacting Lisa. That Please, that would be nice. But uh, 
you know, I, um, yeah, we'll, we'll try again. And we would love it if he would actually give us a call. He had a, a son and a daughter. Yeah, he actually had, um, from the first, well, okay, the first marriage was annulled. And, I mean, you talk about weird coincidences. We're going through all newspaper searches and everything. Um, in 1956 or something like that, the Detroit Free Press has this man-on-the-street interview, right? And they wanted to talk about, you know, um, who's more trustworthy in a marriage, a husband or a wife? That was their topic. And of all people in the world, they, Walter, they interviewed Walter Pika. And he said he was just on his way to get an annulment. <laughs> so he had an opinion on it. But it was like the strangest thing. So the first marriage was annulled, that's why. And his second marriage was the one, his, the one he loved. He actually re, um, uh, he didn't remarry, but they got back together and, and um, they spent their, their final days together. Um, and that was, uh, the, Walter really loved her, but he was in his dark period after the um, um, rejection from the CIA, he left her, and it's a, he had two children from that marriage. And then when he went out west, he met a girl who had a son, and then they had a son together, and then they eventually got married just before they divorced. Um, so there's another child there, and uh, it's an eight and a half, so I guess it's a stepchild. Um, so those are the ones that we're aware of. And well, in, in Sierra Leone, he adopted the bartender so he could try to get some jewels out of Sierra Leone. Hmm. So I don't know if that counts, but uh, he named him Walter Reckett also. So, really? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So other than that, but I, yeah. What about the, uh, a lot of people focus on the particles on the tie because they're right. odd. Yeah. Um, you said he purchased the tie at a thrift store. Right. Uh, is there any, do you guys have any information on a link to those tie particles or just, who knows, it was a tie right. from the thrift store? Yeah, we, um, you know, it was interesting because that, the research on that was outstanding. And I, uh, when I came out, I read it. Um, but it, on the audio tapes that were done in 2008, uh, we're not making this up afterwards, well before the fact, he just said, I bought it at the thrift store. So when I saw that, well, I thought it was interesting. Um, I, it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, it, it doesn't mean it linked it to Cooper because, and as a matter of fact, they, there was a discussion I saw that I think that um, um, Agent Carr did a lot of communicating with different groups, and, uh, and I believe that was brought up that they didn't know if it came. But, um, yeah, that was really good research. It was very interesting, and... Uh, Apparently, there were some rare metals there. How has the reaction been to the story, both from inside the vortex and, and outside? Yeah. Um, inside the vortex, there's been a variety of responses. Um, uh, a couple of them were very angry. Um, yeah, yelling, hanging up on us, and then texting and saying, I'm sorry I hung up on you, and then ended up yelling at us in the email. <laughs> But I, you know, Sounds I get about it. right. I, I, <laughs> um, and then some of them have been wonderful. Um, some of the guys that are here at the conference are really, they've been wonderful. Uh, and, you know, I get it. Uh, they've invested all this time and money and resources. And for someone to say, you know, and, and we were late to the game, obviously. I, 2016, some of these guys have been doing it for decades. 
And as I said, I really respect it. I think we had a huge advantage in that we had Cooper and he was on tape. Um, and uh, so I, I would get it that if um, I had put that much time and energy into something that people wouldn't be ready to embrace it right away. Mm -hmm. And uh, outside the vortex, um, um, most of the response has been uh, really, and, and again, some of the, it's hard to, to measure if they really are in the vortex, if they keep, you know, if they start out by saying, you guys are crazy, you know, you're destroying everything here. I kind of assume they're in the vortex. <laughs> All right, and I could be wrong, but I, like I, I, I kind of assume that they are. But the, uh, the other people out there, we've had some really wonderful responses. There's a, uh, shoot, I wish I could remember Pete's last name, but um, uh, a guy who, was, who has the, held the record for a long time for the highest uh, ejection from a plane and parachuting to earth. And he's a really avid parachutist and a really big Cooper fan. And um, uh, he thinks, he read it and he was like, I believe it. I absolutely believe it. And so, and now we're seeing the, you know, through Joe's book, the, that community saying, the law enforcement community saying, yeah, I think you guys solved it. So um, we're getting a variety of responses. And when people are angry, I, I get it. I'm not, um, we're not here to, to criticize anyone else's work because that's, like I said, some of it's outstanding. You know, the, the um, detective work on the tie fragments is, is wonderful science. It's really good. So I, just think it wasn't relevant hijacking <laughs> <laughs> so, but i have to say that because that's my i absolutely believe it now uh like the guy pete you were just mentioning has there been anyone else who's reached out since all this has come out saying oh i knew walter and this makes sense or hey i have this information i don't know if it's of any value yeah there's um well uh, like I said, we really want the information that his son has. Um, obviously, Lisa, his niece, um, at first they were a little, and, and Walter's sister, were cautious, which is an intelligent way to approach anything, you know, when we're talking about it. Um, but after they found out we were just literally trying to find the truth, they were very, very helpful. Um, a, a lot of the people down in DeLand, who, um, Carl, lives literally in Deland, Florida, and about a mile from one of the most famous drop zones in, in the country. Uh, it is the Mecca. Um, a lot of parachute manufacturers there, a lot of um, a silk manu a lot of people, um, uh, the altimeters, there's a, a group down there um, that own Alti 2, and they literally met Walter, um, and they're, these people are really famous parachutists. Um, uh, and they they were involved in it's a husband and wife team and they were involved in some of the largest formations ever done in, in Thailand and they get invited to these things and but um, they absolutely Carl introduced them to Walter and uh, yeah and they both absolutely believe that it was Walter um, and, and especially after seeing what we put together they um, they're real big proponents of it uh, so a lot in the you know, Carol had a lot of friends. Uh, he and his wife were incredibly generous. Um, they actually have two travel trailers outside their their home, and they let people who have no place to stay, they're in the airport, they're jumpers, and they just say, come and stay in our trailer. You can stay there as long as you want. And, and uh, that's who they are. And um, so the people that know Carl, 
know that he's telling the truth. There's just, uh, once you meet Carl, I like to say, I'd, you, if you talk to Carl for 30 minutes, you feel like you have a new friend um, because he's, he's that open. And politically, we're as far apart as you could possibly be. Um, but we're really good friends. Um, but that's just who he is, you know. And uh, you said at the very start of this that, you know, you weren't into any conspiracy theories. This just wasn't your thing. You didn't think you would ever you know, publish a book about D.B. Cooper. Um, how much longer do you think you're going to be in the D.B. Cooper game? Um, I think we're going to. I, I, I don't think we're going to. Um, uh, well, Joe's book, certainly, you know, but we're the the next part and the part I was really interested in is where we're going next. Okay. And that is, you know, Walter Recca, the blue collar DB Cooper. Um, we think, I, I know that's there. And so, um, that's certainly where we're going next. We feel, I, we feel we've solved this and I don't know there may be some other information coming in. I, I don't think, um, Walter's niece, uh, Lisa, is uh, probably going to write another book about Walter. Um, uh, we're hoping that she does uh, because she's a, a wonderful writer, first of all. Um, and she had a lot of uh, insight into his life. Um, but it would be, I, I don't think we're going to hang out there, but I'm, I hope we get invited to the conferences because we love to tell our story. So, uh, But other than that, I don't... Um, I, I can't foresee. Someone would really have to convince me that uh, they had some information that was worthy of an entire book. Um, that's really, I, I can't see us going there again. Do you think if you had some sort of smoking gun, this is 100% proof, we have yeah. this example, that it would close the case? I doubt it. <laughs> I doubt it. Um, uh, I, I, the, the thing that was... Um, that was shocking to me. One of the people I was interviewing with, they said, Walter saved everything. And he did. It is crazy. We have his immunization records from the military. Who saves those? You know, right. uh, it was, we have all this stuff and, and it was all left. And, and his, his niece, Lisa got it. He sent a lot of the stuff to, to Carl, by the way, his bulletproof vest, his spy camera, a really tiny camera from 1974, which is ridiculous. Um, so he sent all that to Carl. Um, but the question was, why didn't he save a $20 bill? And I'm like, oh, God, I agree. <laughs> that would have been really nice, Walter. If you, But he pretty much spent it, or and then he laundered it up through Canada. Mm -hmm. um, his friend Philip Q helped him launder it in a bank, ultimately in a bank in Quebec. Um, so I, I wish he would have saved it. But, you know, at the end of his life, um, he had... Uh, a lot of people coming in and out and a lot of people had access to his things and and um, uh, a lot of the money for whatever reason disappeared uh, that he had and so I'm thinking that if there was a $20 bill hidden under you know a mat that uh, it probably would have been found and spent <laughs> and I think we would have, but yeah he was uh, the last couple two years of his life he was pretty ill so um, and it was it was tough yeah did Carl ever ask him about the money that was found? Not that I know of. Not on tape, and I haven't asked Carl about that, no. Because that's another thing that makes this so interesting, is, you know, the one piece of 
evidence that everyone has after the hijacking, yeah. no one has any explanation for. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, you know, Don gave a few bundles of, or Walter gave a few bundles to his friend Don, and then the FBI came looking for D.B. Cooper, and he was six foot four, so he didn't really fit the profile. <laughs> and so they pretty much dismissed him appropriately, um, but it, it really scared him. And, um, uh, I'll, and we know that, that Don moved from Seattle, the north, north of Seattle, down to Olympia, uh, about a year and a half before the money was found at Tenabar. Um, and so I can guess, but it's just that. You know, we tried to make connection between Don and uh, Ingram. We were trying to, we really searched hard to find something. Um, Don worked as a, um, as a union worker. Um, and so we uh, went to the, United, the Union Workers Union, and um, he was definitely on their list. Um, but strangely enough, Walt wasn't, but he was just part-time. He wasn't really a full uh, union cardholder. Uh, and so I thought maybe Ingram did. And then, uh, you know, uh, Colbert and their group actually came up with the name of a guy that they believe was responsible for, which was uh, outstanding research. And I thought maybe there's a connection between that, but we haven't been able to make that connection. That would have been wonderful. Um, because I, in my mind, I think it was planted there. I agree with those people who think that it was planted rather than floated. And, you know, the bank bands mysteriously turned into rubber bands. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then they, they survived, uh, nine years, um, buried in silt and sand and moisture. Yeah. Um, I, I happen to believe it was, it was planted there. It, don't have any more evidence than anybody else, but we had enough things that we were looking into. So, uh, but we really don't have. Carl said he just really didn't know. And uh, when they talked, though, uh, Walter said to Carl, "Don't even call and ask him anything about this because he'll hang up immediately." He's Walt said, "Anytime I mention the hijacking, he hangs up." And so he said, "It's he won't even talk to you about it." So that was. Not sure, but, you know, he at least had, as Walter said, a few. I don't know if that was three or four or five, um, but um, that may have been it. I just don't know. Okay. Um, well, I think that about covers it, unless there's anything else. No, I, um, I appreciate the chance to, to tell the story. It is like you said, much different than you said. And, and it's just a different approach than everyone else. So um, I appreciate all the research they did because it helped us uh, with our case to some degree, but we were primarily looking just to either confirm or refute um, what Walter had said. Well, like you said, you started your investigation with Cooper right. versus trying to find him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Carl, Carl kept saying, and, and Carl really suspected Walter the night of the hijacking. Carl didn't even know Walter was in the Northwest, but he knew that after they would jump in, in, uh, with the Michigan parachute team, they would go to Art's house and they would eat and they would drink beer and tell stories. And Art and Carl both remembered Walter saying the perfect robbery would be to rob an airplane and parachute out. And so on the night of the hijacking, when they heard on the news, Carl immediately turned to Loretta and said, what in hell did Walter just do? And then a couple hours later, 
Art calls Carl and said, did you hear what Walt just did? <laughs> and again, they didn't even know he was in the Northwest at that time, but um, he, had, he had talked about that, so. And uh, it sounds like you've got quite a few Cooper-related projects coming up. Since you got the phone call about this, you know, there's a guy who wants to write a book about <laughs> D.B. Cooper. Right. How much of your life has been consumed by this? <laughs> <laughs> that's a really good question. Now, you know, I own another business other than the publishing company, and that's, um, thank God I have some great employees because, um, you know, it used to be that, that consumed all of our time, and then the publishing business, it took up like 20% of it or something like that. Yeah, since, um, since April 1st of uh, 2016 until now, I would say, uh, it's uh, my business life, uh, 95% of it, um, and, uh, and a lot of my nights. I'll wake up and say, <laughs> why didn't I ask this? All right, now we got to check this. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it has been very concerned, but, you know, it's, it's, it's been so enjoyable to work with, first of all, to meet Carl and, and to meet Jeff. Jeff is a wonderful guy. We communicate back and forth, um, and then uh, to, to meet Joe Koenig and actually worked directly with him. It was just a pleasure. And, and Dirk with a film, it's just, uh, you know, going into filmmaking, something we hadn't anticipated. And uh, now it's a really fun thing. So, um, yeah, so it's it's been an incredible couple of years. Yeah, when I heard that there was this book and a documentary coming out, I couldn't have been any happier. I was like, oh, I can't wait. It's going to be so exciting. <laughs> and it seemed to have just from my perspective, just kind of come out of the blue because I kind of keep tabs on um, the Cooper Vortex. Um, I don't post a lot. I don't have my own theory or anything like that. It's just something I've always been really interested in. Um, so this came out and actually one of my friends said, hey, have you heard about this? And I was like, oh yeah, for sure. And then I'm like, actually, no, I, I don't know anything about this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We really did come out and, you know, for that the whole two years of the investigation, um, uh, we had all these <laughs> passports, diaries, bank account numbers, like I said, names, phone numbers, addresses of these people from all over the world. And we've got a lot of them. And having those in the house, um, I have to say my, 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 my wife has been incredibly supportive, but she was like, oh, do we have to have those in the house? So we didn't. We actually... We, it was a concern that um, that we might be visited, you know, <laughs> at some point. So we had them in safe deposit boxes uh, all over the place with um, friends who were not relatives that uh, would be hard to track. But um, so, you know, that that part of it, it was it was for me, it was just thrilling. I, you know, someone said, well, man, what if, you know, what if you get arrested? I thought, what a better reason to be arrested. All right, I can do this. Be you know? Great publicity. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it'd been great for the book. So come on over. You know? <laughs> but but uh, yeah, that was, um, it, it was. And during that entire time, we couldn't say anything to anybody. Um, we had all this information. We had this story and we didn't tell our closest friends. I mean, we were there. What are you doing? You know, I was, I'm a really avid golfer. And all of a sudden my friends at the golf club are like, when are you going to come out and play this year? You know, did you, did you play it all this year? And, uh, it's like, honest, I'll be back. But right now it's, um, yeah, you're gonna have to get someone else for filling me on, on, on league and regular games. So, 
Um, but it's been, it's been fun. And to be able to, once we finally published the book in May, it was like such a relief because now I could talk to everybody and I, and I'm sure I'd, uh, I'm sure my, my good friends really got sick of hearing about it because it's like, Oh, I didn't tell you about this part, you know, because <laughs> it was, I'm finally unleashed. I can talk. So, yeah. So even your friends were surprised when this came out cause you hadn't mentioned it to any of them. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Our kids knew. Uh, which was nice, and a couple of our kids' friends who we really trusted, but it was a really tight circle of people that we actually trusted on this, and uh, and and to not be able to say I'm working on the most exciting thing I've done in a long time. Oh yeah, um, yeah, that was pretty cool. Well, Vern, is there anything else you want to promote or? No, the documentary, the real DB Cooper. Um, uh, is um, uh, I'm sorry, it's D.B. Cooper, The Real Story, um, and um, D.B. Cooper and Me by Carl Lauren are the, the two products we have right now. Joe Koenig's new book that will be out in January is called, his first book was Getting the Truth, which is a fabulous story about trying to um, figure out when people are telling the truth. He analyzes the O.J. Simpson uh, uh, testimony and the John Bonet Ramsey letters and the, all these famous things, and, and uh, it's really fascinating. So he did that, and he tells you how you can actually, when you're talking to people, discern when they're being deceptive and when they're not. Um, at first, it can be really intimidating being around Joe because it's like, honest, I'm not being deceptive, you know. But um, so uh, that was fun. And now he's doing his new one is Getting the Truth, um, IMDb Cooper. Uh, so that'll be out, uh, I think it's January 17th. Well, I look forward yeah. to that. Yes. Vern, thank you for uh, doing this. I really appreciate it. Thank you for the time. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to my interview with Vern Jones. Check out his documentary, D.B. Cooper, The Real Story, available on Vimeo and Amazon, and their book, D.B. Cooper and Me, A Criminal, A Spy, My Best Friend. You'll find links to it all in the show notes. If you have any questions, comments, or top-secret information on the case, you can reach us on Facebook at The Cooper Vortex, or email us at dbcooperpodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review. We'd really appreciate it. Thank you to Vern Jones for taking the time out of your busy schedule to talk to me. Thank you to Russell Colbert for making a great show. I'm Darren Schaefer, and thank you for listening to The Cooper Vortex. Vortex.